kind of stuff. So we can go to the Belfast Literary and Scientific Society. Once again, to the setup room. Uh, apologies for the slightly later than usual start. A few little things we had to deal with just there. But yes, it is very good to see you all. It's a, it's a, it's a cozier crowd this evening. It's more homely and intimate. It's less deep, Yes. So yes, uh, we shall move swiftly along, I believe, to announcements. At some point, I'm going to listen to like old recordings and figure out how other presidents did this because I feel like I'm missing something. But this was not that week. So the first item on our announcements, yes. So a belated announcement uh, that Rachel really said last week. Uh, Mr. Hugh Dublin gives a wave. I don't believe anyone else is here. Emma isn't here. Shay isn't here. And uh, Mr. Bryson, yes, isn't here. Yes. Mr. Dolan and the other freelance in this Inma Friday Portas, uh, Mr. Matthew Bresson and Mr. Shane Glasgow all journey down. Uh, when was it? Not this weekend, past the one before? Yes? Probably. Probably. Down to the far and terrifying land of Dublin, uh, to the UCD yeah. campus, indeed, uh, to participate in the first round of the Irish Miss. Uh, Mr. Dublin and Mr. Glasgow were successful in proceeding to the second round, so I think they deserve a round of applause. <laughs> I also extend thanks to uh, Mr. Bryson and Miss Crowley uh, for attending. They were sadly uh, unsuccessful in qualifying for the next round, but nevertheless, we are very thankful to them for attending. And I apologise to the four of them for not giving this announcement last week. Yes. Also, uh, a general. Uh, which should really have been said every single week. It's just a brief one, a slight disclaimer, uh, which is this is this is the Ryan Neal disclaimer, because he's always been reminding me. Uh, the views and opinions expressed by speakers obviously don't represent those, don't obviously don't necessarily represent those of the House of the Council. Uh, but also, and critically, don't always necessarily even represent their own. Uh, it is not uncommon at all that people get drafted in at the very last minute uh, to fill a slot that has been ready an hour prior, and so they desperately have to scramble to sit out to fill seven minutes in a, in a coherent manner. So please um, don't go pay anything any speaker says personally, because uh, really, oftentimes, they're just trying to fill their seven minutes. Uh, third item is Finn's uh, private members business from last week. Any chance you could call out your phone and hand it to me later, plus I'll read through the rest. Because it'll take me a little time up here. Uh, third item, uh, yes. So this is actually perfect for this week with the, with the slightly lower turnout. We will uh, long last be giving out um, membership numbers on your cards. Nice. So if you have a card, please come and speak to me uh, at the end and we'll get a number on it. Uh, there are other administrative reasons why it is crucial that you do this. Uh, so please do come to it again. No one should have a membership number yet on their card. Uh, hello, Ms. Bellis. What if your card is in your door? That's, that's fine, you can do it some other week. Uh, not everyone who has a card is here this week, so it's fine. But if you do have a card, please speak to me at the end. Uh, also, uh, this is touching on something that we mentioned briefly last week. Charity work. We are doing charity work. Hooray. Uh, and as such, uh, we rather, it was decided to cancel, but rather than uh, cancel picking a charity or the house picking around charity. What we're simply going to do is we're going to support one of the four rag charities for this year. Yeah. And the way that we're going to decide 
which one is a poll will be put up in the will be put up in the literature room probably tomorrow and uh, with the four options you'll vote on those uh, on the forum and whichever one has the most votes uh, by this time next week will be ratified by the house um, so yes uh, look out for that uh, two spaces remain for the gumpkin debate that's our main speaker debate so if uh, this is your first year of uh, speaking at a debate society not necessarily your first year queens I believe last year or the year before we had someone who was in their third year queens and been a member for three years but they had never actually spoken and they were eligible to speak at this uh, so yes, welcome to the bed. The motion is this house regrets the rise of positive, positive discrimination. Thank you, fellas. And uh, there will be a prize this year, uh, not just like a candy bar or something. It will be quite a decent prize. So yes, please do. Or a soy milk. Yes. You can, yes. Yes, that's very good. Flattery will be here. Not much left now. Halloween pop crawl. Our Halloween pop crawl is just this Monday past. Thank you very much to everyone who attended. It was. Uh, Johnny, you're fun, all right, people who are there? Yeah. 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 I did that with the entire time. Did you not see me? You did were you? not there the entire time. I literally was. I will show you photos. I'm disappointed. Uh, Where's I? Uh, anyway. What? What, Mr. Dale? Are these, are these just going to be pictures of the event with you just superimposed on your phone? The next item uh, is. Uh, so, yes, uh, similar to uh, the entire thing. Next week is this house uh, believes NI can have a post-sectarian election. Woo! Yeah. And we have a little special thing planned for that. Uh, the NI hospice charity got in contact with in contact with us a few months ago about hosting a big coffee break. Um, so basically they have given us a kilogram and a quarter of coffee um, to give to you lot, not for free, uh, a donation will be requested, but we don't keep any of the money, it's all for charity. So next week, if you'd like to have coffee, or multiple, uh, get here early, you shall have coffee. A, a two-point donation will be asked, again, that's all for charity. And also, uh, they have included like this sweepstick thing, so basically you'll be asked to guess how many coffee beans are in a cup. Again, two-point entry for that, but whoever gets closest, gets half of the pot, and the other half then also goes to NI Hospice. So, uh, that's pretty easy. Uh, so, thank you, Finn. Do you have it there? Your Finn! <laughs> Memory spam the goldfish! Says you. Um, yes. Who, this, I said this to you last week and you forgot to read it out. That's true. That is very true. Pop, kettle, back and all that. Um, that said, you did address this email to me as Dear Mr. Shannon, uh, so, I, mean, I think I'm winning this game. I sent the email to the perfect president. So, yes, so, uh, I actually just realized I don't need this yet. So, in that then, uh, I would like to invite uh, to read the minutes of last week's debate, the February May meeting. Uh, this house would enforce equal margin and I? Yes. Our wonderful, uh, delightful, charming, eloquent secretary, Mr. Peter Dunn! Yes. Nah, we've all got the shivers I know. The sun will run into chaos. <laughs> I was just going to make me look funny. <laughs> the fifth meeting of the Literary and Scientific Society took place on the 26th of October 2017 and was attended by 73 members. The President swiftly moved into private members' business. 
which has started by Mr. Amy Dutton, who asked the house if they would wish our social officer a very happy birthday. The president said they'd vote to only pass if we agreed to sink the social officer for happy birthday. And I can verify that the terrific bring fine voices here. And Mr. John McDonald, our and Mr. John McDonald, our treasurer, then asked if we would send our good wishes to Hillary Clinton, claiming that she shared many of the values of this fine society espoused. He was, let's just say, vastly mistaken, and thus the motion was quickly rejected. Mr. Scott Moore um, then proposed to the House um, a motion related to a student at Queen's. Um, I'm going to censor this a little bit. Um, he proposed that this house um, would F um, the DDP. Uh, that wasn't. Don't worry, don't worry. I'm getting to that. Um, this was in relation to um, Miss Eddie Evans, who is in currently um, being investigated for a hate crime um, by um, Jim Wells. Um, a motion that was then passed which read, um, this house believes in the right of the oppressor to say F you to the oppressed. And the motion was... The other way, right? right. Yeah, but, sorry, the oppressed to say the right of the oppressor. That was, 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 he asked, despite the President's lack of opinion on pretty much everything and anything, was there anything that he listened to that he enjoyed in the last week? After thoughtful pondering, the House and the Secretary were desperate for the President to say something interesting. And alas, he did. Ah! Oh, <laughs> objection, good sir! Um, the Divine Comedy was his answer, which met with moderate approval. It was met with uh, rising and tremendous approval. <laughs> Honorary Life Member and Secretary Emeritus, Mr. Robert Whitehouse, then asked the President what his best moment of the year was. The President responded by saying, meeting all the lovely people in front of him, was of course his answer. I'm not sure if the people in front of him could say the same thing, um, but the answer was certainly approved of by the House. The President then introduced our guest chair, Mr. William Graham, a former political correspondent for the Irish News. After a few opening remarks, the President introduced the motion, this house will negotiate with terrorists. An opening vote was then taken on speaker ability, which read 16 for proposition, 12 for opposition, and 25 abstentions. Opening the debate up was someone who certainly isn't a stranger to the debating table. Honorary Life Member Mr. Finbar Rogers started his argument for the proposition by saying that terrorists wasn't a useful term due to the cultural context. He went on to point out that negotiation doesn't necessarily mean that the two sides agree, thus giving room for sides who may be opposed in belief to produce product productive results for negotiation. Starting the opening off the opposition was Mr. Conor McMahon, who pleaded to speakers on both sides to not get bogged down in the morality of the debate, or rather to address the motion at hand. He argued by negotiating with terrorists one would elevate them to a stronger position. He then concluded by saying that those with diametrically opposed ideals have no room for compromise. Continuing the argument for the proposition was Mr. Scott Moore. He used Northern Ireland as a living and I think we can say breathing case study. He argued that the progress we have seen, that from a war torn country, 
to a place where we can happily live and enjoy student life. And as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, let's show the only um, way for successful reconciliation was through negotiation. Continue that argument of the opposition that was our very outreach officer, Miss Lauren Fabri O'Neill, who argued that all solutions needed to be long term. She made a comparison to good and bad parents, stating that you could reward a channel for bad behaviour. She then went on to argue that negotiations were far too unpredictable and thus undermined peaceful political actors who fight for positive change. Third up for the proposition was Honorary Life Member Mr. Karen Gallagher, who stated that there are two options when dealing with enemies, either eliminating them or negotiating. No prizes to which side Karen was propagating. He also made the point that you can't make the separation between state actors and non-state actors, arguing that the Jews in Germany would be non-state actors. He concluded by simply saying that history was on the proposition side. Third proposition was Mr. Hugh Duggan. He, with a relief to the House, stated that the speech shall be smarter than the addressings. The thrust of Mr. Duggan's argument was that it was set a very dangerous precedent to bring terrorists to the negotiating table. It would thus normalise the atrocities taken out by extreme terrorist organisation action. He pleaded to the House to reject the ideas of terrorism and to minimise the effects on the population. Including for the proposition, it was Mr. Derek Crosby, who claimed that the opposition cited their use of case studies. They didn't use case studies because they simply hadn't. He stated that one could not just erect walls, but rather break them down with negotiating. He said other means of conflict resolution just led to rise of similar groups and concluded by simply saying the proposition's argument is that they offer peace. Closing for the opposition and thus the debate was Mr. Ali Raja. He started his speech by reading shocking statements but followed by terrorist organisation. He then put it to the House of whether anyone would really want to negotiate with people who believed in the values that supported these statements. He then went on to say that negotiating should not be a one-way street, as he argued it often is in historical situations. To finish, he quickly wrote, as it's impossible to win the marriage, it's impossible to win a negotiation. Questions were then heard from Mr. Liam Mackle, Mr. Ryan Neal, Mr. Christopher Dawson, Mr. Morgan Heckman, and Mr. Colin The casting vote on the motion that this house should negotiate with terrorists then read 21 votes for the proposition, four for the opposition, and 11 abstentions. Thus, the motion was carried. May I thank you, Busy uh, videoing Mr. Dunn there. Uh, we need, we need a sample data for the That's what that was. So, yes, uh, I could have figured that myself. Ah, I feel rather frazzled this evening, can you tell? There's your phone, Finn. You don't need this. No, I found it online. So, now, on private members' business, the first item on private members' business for this evening is a piece that is, uh, was sent in last week. Uh, by Mr. Rogers, so let's get right to it. Two weeks ago. He writes, yes, two weeks ago, apologies, Mr. Rogers, uh, for the delay. Uh, dear Mr. Shannon, uh, that will be our channel leader, uh, I am writing to you today in order to gauge both opinion and level of awareness of a matter pressing to student life and living at Queen's University Belfast, a matter which has plagued the good name <coughs> of the university since the time when E.L. Duffin was but a humble fresher getting blown around the back of Kelly Sellers. 
whatever that might mean. James Cummings moustache. I refer, of course, to the matter of students of Queen's wearing their gowns in, in an improper manner whilst on campus. Improper hair meaning not at all. <laughs> this is a matter which has roused the ire of the litter of Hydra not just once but twice since the founding of the Sistine Society. Once in the days of the older religion, pre-1968, uh, did the control right to the university to address this monstrosity of sartorial slacking. More recently, the issue was raised again by Dr. Stephen Goss, HLM, and a speed harpsichord tutor to the 164th session. Regardless of uh, the numerous calls for action from the literary, the university has remained as flaccid as Jim Wells on an Easter Sunday, or just as Queen's is usually, his words, his words, uh, it seems necessary that the matter should be raised again in order that the next step may be decided. Dare I say, we might even think it necessary to discuss a possible nuclear option. I look forward to your reply. Yours with one bat. H-E-N-M, Finbar Rogers, KGB, M-P-B-A, Joint Honours, M-A-M, Bar, P-S, Mind Out for Plant Life. That's <laughs> peculiar, Mr. Rogers, but I do appreciate it. So yes, uh, I believe the, the question that uh, Mr. Rogers was asking, albeit in a fairly roundabout way, is what does this host think of the fact that these wonderful gowns are not required attire to those participating in campus life? Who has any thoughts on the matter? Uh, I saw Mr. Goblin's handbook first, so Mr. Goblin, please stand. I don't really care. I mean, I'll let you win, yeah. that's fine, uh, but because uh, that was so short, but nonetheless, uh, Miss Bottles? Um, as someone who is under five feet, those things look terrible on me. I've had to wear it in high school, like I had to wear something similar to that when I graduated from high school. No, it's, it's not the same. Like, <laughs> um, and I'm really glad that we don't have to wear those anymore because I would look terrible and I'm sure other people feel the same. Oh, wow. Uh, let's go with Miss uh, Fleming. It's not so much about the guys, but I mean, we wrote to them a couple of years ago and there was no response, and that's just rude. Right. Uh, I think that if the society did require for people to wear guns here, it would be highly ex exclusionary and would put off uh, new members from Parkas Peaton. So I don't think it would be that good an idea. Here, here. Mr. Neil? Uh, I have any questions here? Just finish suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we're way beyond the questioning point there, Neil. Uh, Mr. Dunn! As lovely as these guns are, as much as we um, like to keep up with tradition and everything, it also gets flipping hot on these guns. And I wouldn't like to put that above everybody um, in society, so that, that's my piece on that. <laughs> Do we really want people in our society who are unwilling or unable to wear guns? <laughs> Possibly say a word beginning with uh, it and writing with Jir Jir, but I, I can possibly. Uh, Mr. Darby. I think that that should only come into force if we can choose what colour they are. Yes. <laughs> uh, I believe there are set colours for different academic levels, hence why you're in the yellow. Oh, yes, there are guys coming from. Mr. Gallagher, Rachel. Actually, thank you for coming to that last uh, point. If um, the society doesn't like the idea of the compulsory wearing of gowns, 
you have one body to thank for that, and that is in fact Queen Stuart II, who had helped yeah. abolish them in the first place to deliver a bit of noise. Okay. Inclusion for all the country models, blah, blah. And I did have a point after that, and I forgot that so much again. Ah, you know, Mr. Gallagher, as I'm sure you already do know, that the literature was the original union, and as a farmer girl, we were never legitimately uh, uh, removed of that status. So as far as I'm concerned, any movement by the union to remove guys is not legitimate. Uh, Mr. Gallagher. Or a few seconds. On your feet, Mr. Gallagher. Yeah. So it's. I've long advocated that Lunarific be a casual society. In fact, the degree to which the degree to which people have been dressing smartly for debates this year has been dissatisfactory. <laughs> I, for one, welcome the abolition of guns for ordinary members. You and Peter can continue to because you just look so damn cute. <laughs> 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 Let's with the, the latter or the former part? No, the, the, <laughs> former, the former part. Actually, go ahead, the former part. Um, may I remind you that one of the strong reasons this uh, society was banned from campus for so many decades, a few decades ago, was because one particular member took casual aspect and all too serious. Very true, Mr. Gallagher. Any final points in the motion? Uh, no. Ah, okay. Mr. Spada, final closing point, man. I really agree with you. I'm a big, like, casual clothes person at heart. I love sweatshirts, hoodies, everything. And I don't think it makes you, like, less professional. Because, you know, like, if you have, like, a really nice clean sweater, Buddy, I still feel really professional, so yeah. Well, that's so that's the god kid is spinning in his grave. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, Mr. Rogers, do you feel this needs to be put to a vote of some sort? Are you, are you, or are you happy with that discussion? Either or. In that case, in the interest of time, I will thank Alice for that uh, fascinating discussion, uh, and I will, I will retreat to the council camp. And I will formulate a plan for how we can uh, see and bring about a glorious resurgence in the government. But until that time, I shall refrain from putting a motion to the floor. Uh, are there any other items of private members' business? Mr. Herman? I would just like to ask if the House would support Belfast City Council's recent, and by recent I mean last night at around half past eight, um, support of the uh, proposal that the vote be given to 16 and 17 year olds in this region. Here, here, thanks. Yeah. Okay. All right, good point. Anybody have any comments on that? Uh, Mr. Michael. I'm not quite happy to be uh, agree with you, but I think with the, how much 16 and 17-year-olds can attach to social media, and with the fact with the recent election in the U.S., how much social media has impacted on the election, I think a line 16 and 17-year-olds vote might mean our elections might be up to more manipulation by those who are able to manipulate social media. An interesting question, I don't think very much. Uh, Mr. Murphy. 16-year-olds are old enough to work, pay taxes, join the army, get married. They can have sex with their MP, but they can't vote for them. Why, why does that make any sense? Wilson, Mr. Just on the argument that you can join the army but can't vote, uh, you can't be sent into actual battles or any sort of combat role until you're a team. Yeah. Oh. I guess so. Mr. Allen. Um, 
point that you can't that you can join the army at 16. You can't buy scissors in the UK at 16. <laughs> so um, maybe that's why they don't allow us to vote. Uh, as someone who was too young to vote in both Brexit referendums and in the 2017 general election, yeah. I agree with this because it allows people that are really young like me to actually have a say when they're only about two months, I was only a month younger than when the election took place to be, to be allowed to vote in it. So I think it's unfair on those sorts of people to deny them the right to vote when they are so close to that age. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Rogers. Thank you. It's quite clear, recent events have made incontrovertible, that far too many people are allowed to vote already. <laughs> <laughs> for example, all of those people in East London area who vote for Gregory Campbell. Oh. Now I can understand voting for the DUP. I can understand why people are in a certain mindset that pushes them to do that. I, can. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. Yeah, but I'm just more intelligent than you are. Objection! But voting for Gregory Campbell, specifically, there is no excuse for that. Don't be quite crap. I'd like to point out that you brought that up on yourself, Mr. Murphy, and you're thinking, ah! I'll take one final point for Mr. O'Neill. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, I think there is a lot of romanticism, especially in a society that is already political, but again, the majority of students probably do not know as much as certain people in this room. And I think there is, as an outstanding point, there's an absolute trend between people getting older and not wanting under 18s to vote. And so it's something to think about as you get older, because that is the trend. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Fred, uh, for this just time, uh, can I just ask? Gallagher, do you remember Nathan Anderson? Yes. Do you know what's do you about the situation? Um, do you want yes. to say anything? Just, just before the motion, before if, I said. If you want me to. Yes, please do. Um, I, I'm not an expert on the situation, but um, Nathan Anderson, who's a, a former vice president of the, um, of the Student's Union, currently serving uh, councillor in, uh, I can't remember which oh, district, okay. but it's very fascinating. Thank you. Um, and also, uh, quite a long time member of the society. Yes, spoken many times. We've, we've clashed words a few times. But a very good man. Um, I wouldn't have bad words said about him. Um, and his, um, he got married recently to an American woman. Unfortunately, their visa, uh, rather her, uh, their visa, so they could be in the same location, i.e. for her to come over here, uh, was denied. Um, the reasons why I think was something to do with their joint salary not being quite enough, which doesn't seem to really hold up when you hold it against uh, the rules for immigration to, uh, to this country. Uh, the upshot being, of course, his um, wife recently went through a miscarriage and they were unable to be with each other, frankly. Uh, so I think what the president is alleging, please forgive me if I'm uh, misjudging here, is that we send our support to uh, Councillor Nathan Anderson uh, in a particularly trying time. Yes, that is, that is exactly what I was getting at. Uh, he's a good man, uh, his personal politics probably uh, will not align with 
some people deserve it, nevertheless, he is a good man and has been a good member and a friend of the society. So I would urge that uh, someone would second this motion. Second. second. So just to clarify, that motion is this House would send its uh, support to Nathan Anderson and Councilman Nathan Anderson and his family at this time. Uh, all those in favour, please raise your hand and say aye. 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 Uh, yes, all those against say nay. Abstaining say nay. Pass unanimously. Thank you very much. Uh, we shall go to a remarkably fast and lightning round of President's questions. Does anybody have any questions for me? I shall go with Mr. Solomon. Did you hear I did, in fact. Yes, I did just today, in fact. It's going to be as I said, they're always good, good chaps. They have a, a loyalty card. You get 10 hackers, you get one free. It's, it's amazing. Uh, any, other, any other questions? Miss Bellas. Um, so there has been a meme made about you in the Flarific um, oh. Memes for God and Teens about how like you're so like neutral and everything. Yes. And this is like my, it's a little serious, but um this is my favorite sweatshirt, which means that um if you're neutral, um you stand on the side of the oppressor and I wanna know like how you would like address that. I mean and, I mean I'm not sure what else to say, Miss Bellas. Apart from the fact that, I mean, there really is nothing that I enjoy more than oppressing everyone upon this earth. I am completely in agreement with that shirt. Frankly, if everybody could be beneath my thumb and my boot heel, I would be a happy man indeed. So yes, yes, I have no objection to that. It's quite wonderful. Maybe you should on. how it does to everybody. Bart can't grab those who already have a plan card ever. Something terrible. Um, Mr. Allen. So, since you've already made an announcement about how much fun we all had, of the pubs that we all went to on Monday night, which was your favourite pub? <laughs> <laughs> My favourite would probably have to be Apartment, although the Duke of York was quite nice, as I feel good. Although, where did we go to first? Uh, Dan, I can't even remember that one. <laughs> probably Apartment was nice because it reminded me of the where we went after the conversazioning back. In the one six seven seven. Yes, the apartment was quite nice. Anyone else? Any other questions? Questions? Uh, Mr. Gavin. Since I've already referenced it, what did you have for lunch? Oh, Tell me. I had uh, it was quite a little lunch before. Two um, cheese flaps uh, and oh. uh, a packet of salt and vinegar McCoys. Good choice. McCoy's are the best scripts. Yeah. They're, they're, here, they're, they're here. country. Yeah. And salt and vinegar is the superior flavor. Here, here. Uh, yes, good man. Uh, any final Christmas questions? Garments. Go in twice. Come oh, So, this evening, uh, I have uh, I must apologize for once again, I have not prepared for this particular set. Oh, sure, actually, I have prepared for this particular set entirely. Uh, first of all, a vote on prior opinion. So, the motion this evening, as uh, all of you are probably quite aware, is this house would blaspheme. So, this, you don't need your magic card for this bit, let's see if this is the binding vote. Uh, but yes, so, quick show of hands. Could all those who currently would like to vote in favour of the motion that this house would blaspheme, please raise your hand and say aye! Aye! aye. Keep them up, keep them up. <laughs> <laughs> And for all those who would like to vote against the motion, please raise your hand and say nay! Nay! Give them up, 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 give them up,
That's perfect. I'd always like to extend. Please raise your hand and say, Meh! Man, you're welcome. Well, I'm sorry. I believe that the proposition had that vote, so yes. Finally, once again, we have a very special guest chair this evening. What I was going to say earlier was that uh, I want to apologize to our guest chair. I haven't done my due diligence, my background research has very issued. So, uh, all I really have in the way of an introduction is that our guest speaker, our guest chair rather this evening, is a lecturer here at Queen's. Uh, he is a referendum, he is a doctor, and his name is Paul Bailey. So could you please welcome him? It gives me a pleasure to uh, address you very briefly this evening. I've already been thoroughly warned uh, by Mr. Secretary about the chairs by both Rambo Rong at excessive length. <laughs> 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 Quite well accepted. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. Um, some 25 years ago, I'm afraid it is as long ago that I was the president of the Queen's University Belfast Debate Society, or whatever we call ourselves. Hardly, look at I heard that, but of course we didn't realize we'd be banned under dubious circumstances. That was well, sir. Yes, yes. <laughs> But uh, yes, and indeed in my days, I don't know if I'm about the Queen's Order. I don't know if that still exists or not, but uh, we had a very cruel president back in my day. And uh, For example, he, he selected the, the secretary purely because the secretary had an impenetrable accent and a speech impediment. <laughs> and it really was very cruel. So for many, many years, this guy kept on being re-elected. And uh, for many years, we'd never had any clue what the minister said. <laughs> so you, you were a model of clarity. So. <laughs> but immediately, uh, yes, I remember the, the night I got uh, the Queen's Order, the, the President cruelly shoved into my hands then a, a sheaf of, uh, of apologies from the various members of the aristocracy that he had invited uh, to the debating society that evening. And uh, of course, the aristocracy appeared to write very much like uh, drunken baboons. And the Queen's orator couldn't actually read uh, any of these things and looked very foolish in front of those aristocrats who they had turned up. I will be brief because, as already observed, uh, time has, has marched on. Uh, but it is lovely to see that the theatricality and the humour of the society has not been diminished by the passing of the years. And as you can see, I, I side on the side of those who wish to be informal. Uh, the only reason I'm not wearing a gown this evening is, and this is true, that the moth got at night and it's not wearable anymore. Uh, I'm afraid I am that old. Blasphemy. Uh, let me not ramble on about this unduly. Blasphemy comes from Greek, as an, an academic theologian, I suppose. Uh, part of my life, another part of my life, uh, I, I work overseas uh, in a country very often where blasphemy is, in fact, uh, punctual. Uh, with very, very severe penalties indeed. But blasphemy comes from, from Greek, it means injurious speech, uh, but obviously very much in, in the sense of profanity or sacrilege. In Europe, in the Christian tradition, uh, 
with the idea of blasphemy finds its origins in the Old Testament, uh, particularly the commandments, uh, but also in Leviticus uh, chapter 24. Uh, within Islamic tradition, uh, there are prohibitions against uh, profaning the name of Allah and also Muhammad uh, in the Quran and also in the Hadith. Um, in the world today, um, particularly with the, the decline of religion uh, in Europe, uh, the rise of secularism in the post Enlightenment period, uh, many blasphemy laws have essentially become uh, inoperative and dead. Um, many world bodies, such as the United Nations and uh, the European Union, the Council of Europe, and so forth, have uh, spoken uh, against the very idea of having blasphemy laws. Uh, but, as we already mentioned this evening, there are many parts of the world, even tonight, uh, where if you were to be perceived as blaspheming, you could pay for that with your life. So, it is very much a, a hot topic in many parts of the world. Uh, but even here in Europe, it seems to be maybe a dead issue. Uh, there are issues relating to freedom of religion, uh, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Uh, and of course, the, the whole debate now about uh, protected groups and what constitutes hate speech. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to this particular debate, and I'd like to assure those that although I may be an academic theologian, there will be rigorous impartiality from the chair. Thank you. to remind the House that uh, in cases of motions regarding uh, religious topics or political topics, the standing orders regarding religious and political polemic being forbidden are implicitly waived. Uh, so it would be detrimental to, to the debate if we were to put such restrictions on our speakers this evening. Hopefully they will not go too overboard, but nevertheless uh, they are technically free to do so. Yeah. So without any further ado, uh, on behalf of our guest chair this evening, I would like to welcome to open the motion, uh, Mr. Ryan Neal. Mr. President, honourable members of the House. Blasphemy, not only as a concept, but also as a moral metric, is useless at best. The act of insulting, showing contempt or lacking reverence towards a god or any religious person of faith is neither inherently moral nor immoral. It is in fact an amoral act, defined primarily by its context and completely open to interpretation. So, in order for the argument to be made that this house would indeed blaspheme, it's imperative that we establish the context. In other words, why would this house blaspheme? Now, there's no question that we're at liberty to blaspheme as much as we like, given that we have the freedom of speech enshrined in our law. This is an obvious fact. Though it should be said that if you insist on showing a Christian a picture of God wearing, I don't know, the sun as a ball guy, um, chances are he may not invite you around for tea later that evening, unless he's into that. So it's safe to say that this house wouldn't blaspheme needlessly. At the very least, in the interests of common decency and getting along with one another. No, this house would blaspheme in circumstances of necessity. Dissent and open confrontation of all ideas, inclusive of religion, are not only essential elements of our freedom of speech, but also essential tools for which to hold institutions and their doctrines to account against both reality and their own fundamental theologies. Yes. 
can maybe like criticize the way like a religious institution is doing something without blasphemizing it. Like, do we do we always like need blasphemy? Okay, well it depends. You see, here's the thing: blasphemy is pure interpretation. It is the interpretation of what you said in comparison to the doctrine of the institution that is viewing or perceiving what you said. So you may not go out of your way to blaspheme, but what you said may be considered blasphemy nonetheless. So, uh, yes, Mark Ray Harley to expose an idea's fallacy as farce. Individuals opposing current doctrinal interpretation, rejection of authority of religious figures or even deities, are all examples of blasphemy where necessity is likely. And thus instances where the proposition not only believes that this fact would, but should blaspheme, should the need arise. As with all things, the moral justification of the act is found in its substance and context. So that's fine as a principle. I'm sure we can all support that reasoning as an abstraction on applied. That said, it is the application of this principle where the strength of the proposition's argument is truly revealed, as this is where we see blasphemy as a moral foundation come away into the purely subjective, vapid nothing that is. For who decides what is blasphemous and what is not? What one individual or institution can indisputably claim an all-knowing interpretation or authority over the transcendent and do so with any uh, semblance of credibility. To quell a factual and truthful argument, or even a mere opinion, on the basis of perceived blasphemy or reverence, is a cheap and abusable means for the powerful to subvert the opposition in matters of faith. The proposition can provide both religious examples as well as secular reasons for why blasphemy is an awful moral metric which carries the guilt. In terms of the religious, giving that this week, in fact, is the anniversary, um, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which includes criticisms of the Vatican's doctrine and actions, including the act of selling indulgences, resulted in Luther being branded a heretical blasphemer by the church. The Vatican's dogma and rejection of opposition resulted in what could likely be called Protestantism and the peasants' revolt. Their intransigence invited disaster and what can only be described as a second schism in Christendom. In terms of secular, we need to look no further than the horrendous treatment of Galileo regarding his theory of heliocentrism, for which he was interned indefinitely under house arrest, which sadly he died at this moment and was never released again. The idea of the planets orbiting the sun is a well established scientific fact, I hope you all agree. Um, however, uh, blasphemy was used to silence truth and shut down the debate, in this case by the Roman Inquisition. So it's quite clear why this house would blaspheme. But we would have no problems making an argument we believe to be true, irrespective of the protests of our detractors and whatever buzzwords they will use to negatively market our ideas, such as blasphemy. It's important to consider that nobody labels themselves as a blasphemer. That is a label thrown around from the ideological opposition, with the sole purpose of shutting down the argument. Now, there will always be those who wish to insult faith for of others for the sake of insult. However, our proposition to yourselves tonight uh, makes the distinction from this, that the distinction being the content of the argument. I described some examples of how blasphemy as a concept applied leads to a very spurious outcome inconsistent with either truth or our inherent human decency. And the rest of the proposition tonight will continue to provide further examples should you remain able to convince. In circumstances of the religious zeitgeist, pushing forward harmful, discriminating, corrupt, or just plain incorrect statements or doctrine, I would like to believe this House would see it as their solemn duty to resist and oppose such policy, not only as an academic imperative, 
but as immoral. To maintain the integrity of their truth in the face of those crying blasphemy and heresy, to have the courage to stand for what is right in the face of religious authority for the greater good of the people, the congregation, and for society as a whole. Given that this House holds the art of debate in such high esteem, I have every belief that you will stand with me should the need arise and make our voices heard. So I say this with confidence. This House would blaspheme. Thank you very much. Of some of the most oppressed members of our society. Oh, I accept. 
And Western liberalism was completely um, evolved towards individualism. Like that's what we live in, that's what that's what's thrived the last three hundred years. Also you talk about tolerance. What is your tolerance for people who wish to act in such a way? In society, as I will describe in my speech, tolerance can only go so far. So for instance, even though we would have the freedom to racially verbally abuse someone based on their race, I would not say that's an appropriate thing to do. So likewise, I'm going to argue that abusing someone based on religion, likewise, is not an appropriate thing to do. Because according to the Office of National Statistics, some 4.5 million foreign-born citizens of the UK are religious believers, most of whom being either Muslim, African Pentecostal, or Polish Catholic. These groups already suffer from institutional racism, and adding blasphemy and disrespect for their religions will only deepen already existing divides in our society. Hold on, hold on. I reject. For instance, depicting images of the Prophet Muhammad is considered blasphemy in Islam. Yet in 2015, the UKIP candidate, Anne-Marie Waters, decided to arrange an exhibit of images of Muhammad. There was nothing illegal about her actions. She was simply expressing her artistic freedom. And to quote the words of the proposition, she felt this was a necessary act of blasphemy because she felt her culture was being threatened. But just because you can do something does not mean it is wise, especially when we consider that, that religious-based hate crime is up 500% in the past year. My colleague Sarah will be further examining, I reject, the relationship between rights and responsibilities. Furthermore, I wish to consider the motion from a purely semantic point of view. The English language is a complex and beautiful language with so many ways of expressing strong emotion without needing to resort to cheap religious defamation. As I focused on Islam earlier, I will now specifically focus on blasphemy against the Christian religion, which remains held by a third of the world. The name of Jesus Christ, whom Christians worship, is now used subconsciously as a swear word. However, the atheist commentator, Gordo Laidlaw, pointed out how using Christ as a swear word makes no sense. I reject. If you are not a believer, Christ was just a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, said some nice things about love, and died. So, can we think of better ways of expressing our emotions than relying on such lazy blasphemy? My colleague Daniel will examine this Christocentric approach further in his speech. The beauty of language is that it evolves over time as society progresses and becomes more inclusive. As I draw my speech to a close, may I ask you to examine your motives when you blaspheme? Is it a subconscious habit? Is it an attempt to start a conversation? Or are you simply doing it to irritate people? The difference between blasphemy and genuine criticism of religion lies in intent. I am more than happy to have a debate of the merits and demerits of religion but not if it simply dissolves into blasphemous slander. I will finish with a quote from the late Paul Kurtz, a humanist 
and very much an atheist. He said, it is one thing to examine and criticize the claims of a religion in a responsible way, but it is quite another to violate the key humanist principle of tolerance. Thank you. Thank you for that very much. And I invite the House then to, um, in a traditional way, thank our main speaker. Transcends common sense and wins out. 
Many components of the idea of blasphemy have a big advantage on their side. They are able to obfuscate and blur the line between their illegitimate efforts to shame others into silence with the actual legitimate efforts to protect people from discrimination and harassment for their religious beliefs. But for me, the two are incomparable for one simple reason. People have rights. Ideas do not. Me criticizing your religion does not make this society an unsafe place for people of your religion in a way it would if I harassed you as an individual and your religious beliefs. It particularly doesn't make you unsafe if your religion, which I am criticizing, happens to be the majority religion or the biggest religion within that society. And I cannot stress that enough. Christians in Northern Ireland are not oppressed. Christians in Britain and Ireland are not oppressed. Christians in America are not oppressed. They are the majority or a plurality. Not only is it laughable to claim you're oppressed, it is insulting and offensive to Christians in the Middle East and Africa who get executed for their religious beliefs. Compared to people in Northern Ireland claiming that equal marriage for LGBT people violates the rights of the Christian majority. Hogwash. Fundamentally, blasphemy and its enforcement are arbitrary, nonsensical, and illegitimate. Why should Christianity be enforced in all of society as opposed to any other religious belief? Being the majority religion isn't a good enough reason. The whole idea of a liberal democratic society is that people have inviolable rights and dignity the majorities can't wash away. On that point, yes? Just because you have the right to say basically what you want is free speech, surely that still doesn't mean that you should say things that will offend people if there's no reason to say those things. Well, it depends on what basis they're offended on. If they're offended by you making legitimate criticism uh, or sat satirizing or ridiculing these ideas, then I don't believe they have a legitimate basis upon which to be offended. But if it's hate speech or harassment, that's something different, as I've touched upon. A massive gripe I have with people who play the blasphemy card is those who play with like language themselves. Language itself. If I'm around you and I say, oh God, or oh Jesus, and you tell me, don't swear, or a variation of that, then you can actually wise up. Your religious laws do not apply to me, and if you think they do, too, you can play at that game. Maybe one day I will convert from being non-religious to believing in wordism, whose only rules are that you cannot say any of the 50 most common words of whatever language you speak. So you can use words like the, be, to, and of. In my presence, I might say, don't swear. And if that sounds unreasonable to you, that would be because it is unreasonable. That point, sir. Yes? Well, the first thing that the opposition did make it clear on their definition of blasphemy that they have no problem with people making legitimate criticisms uh, against, their, against our religion. Um, but uh, actually just trying to be offensive uh, is what they had a particular problem with. Well, I'm, I'm sure they have a certain idea of what they think blasphemy is or what it should be, but it simply doesn't line up with how a lot of, a lot of other people think it is or should be, and that's something I'm going to be coming up with now. Because there are an infinite number of religions you could come up with, and an infinite number of possible blasphemous words or ideas, then everything is blasphemous. The motion is this house to blaspheme. To not blaspheme would mean to become completely silent, to say and write nothing. How could it possibly be reasonable to request that of a debating society, of opinionated students? But we all know this is a problem beyond petty nations. It has particularly come to the fore with the controversy over the Danish newspaper, which printed images satirizing the Prophet Muhammad. Just as I defend the right of people to blaspheme against Christianity, I defend the right of people to blaspheme against Islam. If I want to draw a picture of Muhammad, I will do so, even though I'm not that good of an artist. 
But the fact that you can draw a stick figure and then draw an arrow pointing at it, saying Muhammad, and that would be considered offensive, is ridiculous. And shows just how arbitrary this idea of blasphemy is and how it is all about control. I will conclude with this. Advocates of the idea of blasphemy don't want people to rot the boat. They want people to keep the peace, not to offend people. When it comes to talking about this, we talk too much about offending people and not enough about whether it is reasonable for them to be offended. The biggest imperative, it appears, is that we must be tolerant. But who's really intolerant here? Those demanding to freely criticize ideas or those seeking to control people? Once again, in order to be tolerant, we must be intolerant of intolerance. Thank you.
not to swear in front of a room of five-year-olds, you shouldn't blaspheme in public. No, thank you. Furthermore, our freedom of expression is routinely restricted in our day-to-day -day life. We think nothing of this. Most of the time, we agree it's sensible. It is banned on television before 9 o'clock to show extreme violence or sex scenes or to swear. We agree with that because we feel that our young children should not be exposed to these things. But it does restrict our freedom of expression. We live in a society where a baker throwing his baked Alaska into a bin meant that Ofcom received 800 complaints. We live in a society where people are offended easily. And that is why things need to be restricted. Because, as Ms. Burnett said, blasphemy disharmonizes society. And we need, no thank you, we need society to be harmonized. Even the literific society restricts our freedom of expression. If I were to swear here tonight, I would be fined, no matter how reasonable or unreasonable you may think this. The literific society usually restricts our freedom of expression even more because in its constitution it says that party politics and religious polemics are expressly forbidden during meetings of the society. That is restricting our free speech. However, despite disagreeing with last in public, no thank you, I do not think that I lack a sense of humour. I enjoy comedy, and I acknowledge that comedy involves quite often offending people. Hold that one. Yes. Then, so, uh, if you are like, if you enjoy comedy, and you're trying to say that you don't care about that, why do you care about people blaspheming when they don't are trying to do something wrong with you? Because blasphemy causes much more offence than many other things, and eighty-four percent of the entire population of the world believe in one religion or another, and as I was about to say, it depends what comedy is attacking. Comedy, if it is going to focus on religion, should focus on the institutions of the faith and the people involved in the institutions. Let's look at Father Ted as a case study. Father Ted is a hilarious show, and I am quite willing to have another debate with anyone who disagrees with me. It's become part of our culture, its sayings have become part of our language. Yet quite often the funniest moments in it do not involve blasphemy. Kicking Bishop Brennan up the, and because I'm not sure to what extent the terrific society restricts my free speech, I'm going to go with rear end is not blasphemy. Having Father accused of stealing church funds and defending himself with the money was only resting in my bank account is not blasphemy. Father Dougal's idiocy, Father Jack's drunkenness, and Mrs. Doyle's you will, you will, you will, you will, you will, you will, you will attitude to tea is not blasphemy, yet it is what makes the show the beloved um, show it is today a treasure, one could say. And Father Ted is not the only show that successfully ridicules the institutions without um, resorting to blasphemy. The Vicar of Dibley does it also. 
Ladies and gentlemen, what we've made very clear is that we all have the freedom of expression. However, this freedom of expression is not without its limitations. To have the right to say whatever you feel comes with responsibility to not to offend others. When it comes to God, to religion, to faith, in the words of Aretha Franklin, all I'm asking for is a little respect. Blasphemy shows the faith of religious believers no respect at all. Thank you for that, and I invite the Such anyway, 
but all the points are no, no, no back and forth. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll come to it. So the likes of Darwin, Galileo, Newton, we would have been proud of them all had we succeeded, or had they succeeded, in dealing with heretics for the crime of blasphemy, including from the passage I just read out, the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus to death. We have heard that we must be careful of insulting people, uh, of causing anger, and indeed we should. There is a moral as well as a democratic imperative that we show due respect to those we disagree with or those that we don't understand. But when we restrict free speech, then we not only suppress the individual who speaks, but more importantly, we deprive people of being able to hear that opinion. Now, it is amazing the quantity of literary giants one has at their disposal when defending free speech. But to quote one George Orwell, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. All these commentators on society recognize the necessity of free speech as that fundamental right which underpins others in a pluralistic society. So, what does it look like when people are not allowed to blaspheme? We need not look too far for uh, manifestations, extreme manifestations of blasphemy laws on this earth. The power to decide what constitutes blasphemy is a power which has been shown time and again in human history to be too susceptible to corruption. In Saudi Arabia, it has been shown that punishments for blasphemy... On that point? Uh, just, uh, punishments for blasphemy involve prison, fines, lashing by whip, can range up to death. Torture is often utilised to extract confessions. Blasphemy charges are made exclusively against those who criticise Salafism or the Saudi monarchy or indeed anybody who does not practice non-Salafi Islam. Um, we have made it very clear that we do not agree with criminalising blasphemy mm -hmm. and you keep using the idea of blasphemy as being illegal as to show that you should be allowed to blaspheme. Um, I feel that's really detracting from what we're saying, that you shouldn't, you can, but you shouldn't. Sure. Um, I, I take point on that, and uh, to be clear, that was the first time I spoke about it being illegal. What we're saying is that if we start off by saying, oh, no, no, don't say that, if we start off with societal pressure and there's a gradual building, it ultimately does manifest itself in illegality once that becomes a large enough force. I understand that's not what you're suggesting initially, but we're suggesting that that can be the ultimate outcome and that the consequences can be dire. So, I stand before you today a devout Christian, uh, but determined to preserve the right of someone to blaspheme because it is a particularly and ominously ambiguous concept. So what is blasphemy has been mentioned several times tonight. We use the phrases of uh, my friends here of a semantic point of view. What is one's motives? This is the point. One man's blasphemy is another man's truth. The fact that we have argued this point is in itself evidence that there can be no benevolent arbiter on this earth who decides what could and should not be said. So as was said in Proverbs, the vexation 
of a food that is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Sometimes one blasphemes in pursuit of truth. To sacrifice our ability to blaspheme is to sacrifice free speech. For while blasphemy might change with the times, truth does not. Just look to the example of Christ, who was condemned of blasphemy, and he proclaimed truth. And so, and uh, let's just finish by asking, imploring you, for your sake, blaspheme if you must. For rhetoric's sake, blaspheme if you must. For the enlightened egalitarian and democratic principles which underpin our society, blaspheme if you must. Ladies and gentlemen, for God's sake, blaspheme if you must. Yes, captive audience, this house would blaspheme. Amen. Thank you for that. Uh, as an honorary chair or country uh, chair, I've fallen down in my duties already because I forgot to mention that this gentleman is an amazing speaker, so that's fine. <laughs> I'm not making a mistake twice. Another amazing speaker, Mr. Daniel Lee. some of the things which we've heard from our friends on the proposition tonight. We've heard, um, we've heard about Christianity being enforced upon society. I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, we've heard some mixing up with blasphemy and heresy. They're two separate, two separate things. We'll maybe come on to those a little bit later. Uh, Mr. President, this motion is predicated on the reality of God's existence. You might have noticed. Uh, to blaspheme is to speak in a way which shows irreverence for God. It follows then, if there is no God, there is no blasphemy. Uh, there can be no such thing. Second point is that this predication is a fitting one. The presupposition that God exists is entirely in keeping with science and philosophy. Now, the first speaker mentioned there's an argument from causality. The universe uh, had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. There's everything which has a beginning has a cause. There's also an argument for morality. Uh, if objective moral values do not exist, God does not exist. But there are some things which are objectively wrong. Uh, on that one. Uh, yes, I think. Uh, yeah. If there is no God, there is no blasphemy. Then blasphemy is the application of ideology. It's an interpretation of an idea. Ideas exist where people do. And people who certainly do exist unless they've been formed. So as far as I'm aware, there is going to be blasphemy so long as there are ideas. And so long as people reject those ideas, there will be blasphemy. And that is wrong. Um, well, if blasphemy is to speak in a way which shows irreverence for God, it falls that if there is no such, uh, no such God, then the whole concept of blasphemy goes entirely out the window. Um, it, it becomes... It becomes uh, it's completely irrelevant. Um, but as I was saying, if there are objective moral values, then there is a God. Um, and there are some things, of course, which are objectively wrong. Rape, sexual harassment, child abuse, we could go on. 
Um, in and out, in the world without a God, and you can see deeper meaning would be purely an illusion. But let me come to a particular blasphemy pertinent in our context. Of all the figures in human history, Jesus Christ, I believe, is the only one whose name is commonly used as a curse word to express disgust. I'm open to, I'm open to um, people pointing out others, but as far as I can see, uh, he is the single solitary figure subjected to such abuse. Why this man? The question is begged. Well, the proposition have told us that people have rights but not ideas. Well, Jesus Christ was a person. He was a historical person. There seems to me uh, to be only one logical reason why this sole solitary figure should be uh, the object of such unparalleled scorn and derision. And that is, to me, I'm going to say the biblical explanation. That the reality of God is seen by all, but that we are little rebels. We're haters of God, uh, spiteful, proud, and boastful. In our hearts, we naturally hate the very one who's given us life. The very one uh, who had, whose son then had stepped into the world that he had made to save us from ourselves. And that would point make sense. Yes? Do you not think uh, to those folks who ask questions that they say that we hate God is rather patronizing? Uh, well, patronizing or not, I'm sure you're a man who can, who can take harsh truth if it is the truth. So it's a question of whether or not it's the truth. Um, but it would make sense uh, of the anomaly as to why this man's name, Jesus Christ, along with the name of God himself, are the sole names subjected to such vitriol abuse. So, hearing this, if Christianity is true, we should not blaspheme. We should not blaspheme God's name or that of the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, yes? Yes, indeed. So, Christ is used in an irreverent way. I can tell you now as a point of information that is, it comes from you should not take your Lord's name in vain. Uh, and that negative connotation, of course, has transformed as language shows over time. So it's uh, not necessarily an irreverence of Christ itself, merely a response to the negativity through doctrine of the church saying that you should not keep it in vain. Well, we can look at the origin of that and, and that was an instruction which was divine origin. But on the point that you raised earlier, there are no instances of necessity when it is a necessary thing to, to blaspheme. I would say there are no instances when it is necessary to use the name of God or of Jesus Christ, a person, as a curse word to express disgust. And we certainly didn't get any concrete examples from the proposition this evening. Common decency would require that a person's name should not be trampled through the mud in this way. I think that's, that's common decency. Um, but to make some progress, if Christianity is true, we shouldn't blaspheme God's name or Jesus' name because we're indebted to him for our very lives. Because Jesus gave up everything to reconcile us to God and he himself will one day be our judge. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the fundamental reason why we shouldn't blaspheme. The reality of God. This is why blasphemy exists. It's why it's in a category all by itself. It's not just distasteful language. And we've heard that it's all about control. But Christians, for one, don't choose not to blaspheme out of uh, slavish legalism. And talking about oh, that's for the God who has given his very best for us, I'm not going to because I need to make some progress. Sorry about that. Now, I understand that, that for the vast majority of you in this room, probably don't believe um, any of that uh, at all. But nevertheless, we've seen some good arguments for why it is rational to believe in a God. And so far, we haven't seen comparably good arguments from the proposition for why we should not believe in God. Point of clarification. Yes. So, 
Um, is the timer running? Because I want to be slightly verbose here, because I want to explain this. Uh, I'm not going to be very verbose. Well done. There are no more questions now. I'll take this into account, so go ahead. Right, so uh, does your entire argument then rest on Christianity is true? If Christianity is true, blasphemy is wrong, therefore blasphemy is wrong. Uh, it seems obvious to me that if there is a God, uh, that we should not blaspheme. That is a very, very obvious point. Okay? Uh, the whole proposition is based on the assumption that there isn't a God. Because if we are uh, taken in vain, then uh, you know, we would be subject to his wrath. And so that, that's, that is their assumption. So I'm saying if there is good evidence believing in God, there's a good, good reason not to blaspheme. But in conclusion, uh, ladies and gentlemen, whether or not God exists, and this is on your point, we gain nothing from blasphemy uh, for the sake of societal cohesion, as we've heard, for the sake of common decency and respect. There is no reason why we should treat anyone's name with such derision and scorn as, as can be shown. Um, uh, on the contrary, we gain much from choosing to refrain from blasphemy. And I would, I would remind you that this motion predicates itself on the assumption that God exists, because if there is no God, there can be no blasphemy, and therefore it is logical uh, not to blaspheme. And I urge the House to reject the motion. Thank you. attention of the house 
on the step outside Christianity, the actions of the man who took the step, who took actions which at the time were undoubtedly blasphemous, but nonetheless entirely necessary and right. Take Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, an Indian social and economic reformer, the first minister of law in the Indian Republic, who in the annihilation past set out his arguments with an end to the caste system, a system wholly entrenched in the religious dogma of Hinduism, such that speaking out against it could result in mere excommunication. Thank you. And indeed, Dr. Ambedkar himself converted to Buddhism. His blasphemy was the fundamental caste system. And his work, he lends us to the plight of the untouchables, those of the lowest caste, with a harrowing story. While the assembly of the untouchables was engaged in the partaking of the food, the Hindus, in their hundreds, with armed with mathies, rushed to the scene, despoiled the food and belabored the untouchables, who left the food they had been served and ran away for their lives. And why was this murderous assault committed on defenseless untouchables? The reason given is that the untouchables were impudent enough to serve butter. Dr. Ambedkar wished to move the social structure of India once more towards liberty, fraternity, and equality, away from the religious dogma of untouchables and caste. And this is just one example. Think of Galileo, locked away for life, speak for speaking the truth, that we, in fact, do all of the sun. Think of Jesus, kneeled to the cross and left to suffer and die. As I have said, we must not become myopic in this issue. We are lucky enough now to live in a time where liberty, fraternity, and equality are prevalent in our culture. But respect and reverence come in many forms, and sometimes blasphemy is one of those forms. On that point? Yes. It's the arguments that you've made. The arguments that you've made thus far have been about crimes committed by people for religious acts and those that come from abuses of state power where religion is given power. The question I pose to you is do you think that the separation of church and state necessitates blasphemy? And if it doesn't, then can we do so in a way that we don't need to blaspheme to separate church and state and therefore protect freedoms, as is the, the goal of all these answers you've just given? The motion denies this house would blaspheme. So we only need to present circumstances in which blaspheming in pursuit of the truth is a necessary action. In order to, in any way we are reluctant to be blaspheming, it doesn't necessarily mean that the circumstances will present, present, present itself in our lives. We just have to say that there is circumstances in which we will blaspheme. As I said, we are lucky enough to live in a world where respect, liberty, fraternity, and equality have been bestowed upon us. But we must not forget that that was one of the blasphemous actions of men before. For the Galileos, the Jesus Christs, and the Ambedkers, Life today was made possible. If we not the actions of those men, we would not be having this conversation so freely. And while we may live in this free society now, there is not an attempt, there's, there's not a possibility that one day, as we've seen with Trump and Brexit, that the society we now enjoy may recede to more contentious and less equality and liberty and fraternity. And if that were to be the case and say religious institutions were to get more power again, we must be able to accept the fact that there might come a day when blasphemy and speaking out against the power of those institutions would be once again necessary to restore liberty, fraternity and equality. And so with that I would say with a heavy heart.
That's how it's worth passion. Thank you, sir, for closing up the proposition. And now you're finishing for the opposition, Mr. Morgan Hickman. Um, so, my question is, um, 
Are you conflating um, like liberalism and like and like tolerance and acceptance, like with like just Western society? Because there are many examples throughout history of tol of tolerant societies that were um, non-European. Um, okay, I've got a good point. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I understand where you're coming from. That that we, we we speak in this house often of Western liberalism, and um, and we we do in fact do consider, because while we have seen liberal ideas and ideologies throughout history, Western liberalism in itself um, is a unique version of that. And um, as such, that, that's why it's relevant to, um, to considering that in, in this evening's debate. Um, I, I would also challenge, um, uh, one of the points of passion we've had is also that the illegality is the inevitable consequence of the House or general people's opposition to the uh, exercise of freedom of expression in the form of blasphemy. I, I don't think there's a logical premise for that, and you, you've heard that from, from our side of the House previously. Um, I think one of the key points that the, the, uh, that the House has heard discussion on this evening is expression versus respect. And the... Um, and, and this well, one, please. I would my honourable friend agreed me that our own Choice of tarot this evening is evidence enough that people even freedom of expression. Absolutely, yes. Um, the honourable gentleman makes a very, very good point. Um, and, and exactly so, but the proposition, the, the opposition and the opposition agree that freedom of expression is an important principle. But we don't believe that respect can be transcended by an object, uh, um, a subjective principle. On that point, okay. Could you speak explicitly, for instance, to of Jesus? You say it's respect uh, versus, uh, versus something else. The point we're trying to make is that often blasphemy is necessary in our pursuit of truth because while the rest of society might deem blasphemous, we do not. So it's not a case of disrespect; it's a case of truth. Are you the sole arbiter of truth? No, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but, but, but I think that can apply. I mean, uh, you, I, I would actually uh, refer you, generally, we are a fairly empirical society. And I would refer the, uh, the government to the admission that uh, science in itself requires protection in order to, to, to actually have development. And, uh, and on that principle, as, as a society, we, we tend to accept that as a key principle. On that point, no. Um, I have um, We've also heard the argument of the, um, the predication of God's non-existence for the proposition's arguments to succeed. Um, and also we've heard alluded to, on this side of the house, the, uh, the common argument of Pascal's wager, that um, we have an awful lot more to lose if we're wrong on this side of the house than if we're on this side of the house. Um, and equally, we've heard as well that blasphemy was necessary for the world to progress to how it is today. And quite frankly, that's a, a very hypothetical and spurious statement. But we cannot believe that blasphemy, in the terms specified, can be uh, held in, in this light. Um, the final point I would like to make is um, that we've, we've, I think we've had an unnecessary uh, redefinition of the motion by the proposition throughout this debate. That, uh, <laughs> that this house would blaspheme. Is, is, well, that, that's what the whole house is there. It's not a question of 
This house would sometimes blaspheme, if it's necessary, maybe. For this very reason, ladies and gentlemen, I very happily oppose this motion. Don't you know about the abusing this rule, Mr. Michael? <laughs> what is your problem with the question? Mm -hmm. 
Hopefully that wasn't me. I have nothing to say. Uh, any questions for the opposition? Ooh, I shall give it to Miss O'Neill. Harry O'Neill. I remember. Um, there, there's been this um, emphasis that uh, this this house uh, wouldn't blaspheme because we should respect religion and the views of, of the religious. But I would like to um, point out that does religion not disrespect a mass of people? So why, in a case of religion being highly disrespectful of the, the gay community of you know women's rights, you know, and, and, and I'm not just talking about Christianity. I hope it's, I hope it's not taken that way because that seems to be where this has went. Um, why then should we not blaspheme, or why then should we censor ourselves? Until religion is to respect the masses who it has to demand its respect from. Okay, okay. Thank you, Mrs. Uh, Arbor Johnson. Who for the opposition cares? Religion does not disrespect a great deal of people. It says nowhere in the Bible that um, gay marriage is illegal. That is interpretation, and perhaps it's been interpreted wrongly, but it does not say that it is disrespectful. Um, it does not say, well, you can say that the Old Testament says some pretty ridiculous things. It does. It says that we can't wear clothes that um, are two different fabrics. But we're looking at the New Testament, we base our religion. It talks about respecting your neighbour, showing love to your neighbour. And I'd say that that shows great respect to everyone. And to say that, sorry, what's this here's the next and yes, two wrongs don't make a right. If I am offending you in some way by believing in religion, you offending me is not going to make anything any better. That's For the proposition, So you mentioned that uh, it is a fact of interpretation, and I absolutely agree with you. It is an interpretation of the Bible that's put forward by institutions with their own doctrine. Uh, and their own doctrine, of course, which is the physical um, application of, say, blasphemy. Because it is an interpretation, it is something, of course, that is open to whoever decides it is. Um, it is not objective, it is unbinding, it is purely subjective, and thus it is purely a thing. Um, so, yes, I think it encapsulates quite perfectly how blasphemy is a useless metric. It is not in any way a yardstick for what is moral, what is acceptable. Um, so, um, Thank you, Mr. Uh, are there any outstanding points of the motion? Uh, Mr. Bradley. Um, Mr. Chair, Mr. Chair, Mr. Hanks, I'm quite surprised it's not been brought up considering I made the event page for, uh, photo. But what do either side think of uh, Stephen Fry's comments, I believe, the year before last, and the fact that he was technically uh, um, guilty of blasphemy laws in, in the Republic of Ireland? Um, if you want more clarification on what that was, I've got the entire transcript here. Um. <laughs> Sadly, I don't think we have time for that, but I'm uh, glad the option available. I'll ask that the proposition respond first. Who would like to do so? Yes, sir. Mr. Mr. Fry's comments, whether you may agree with them or not, uh, were put out there as his opinion as his contribution to a debate or his thoughts on a daily, uh, the absolute wrong response would be to say that he should not be able to say that. Indeed, he was uh, not overly, he wasn't gratuitous in how he put it, and while some people may have been offended or even thought what he said was silly, 
The point is that you disagree with him, but you don't shut him down and say that you can't say that. So I would like to see, if, if we've been arguing a lot in abstract principles this evening, it would be really great if we could apply this, and I'd really like to hear some actual responses to the Galileo or the Jesus example. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> the, um, so be, if, if the opposition have a chance to speak at any point, it would be great to hear them directly respond as we have requested to Galileo being branded a blasphemer, to Jesus being put to death for being a blasphemer. Thank you, Philip Carson. A general rule of thumb for anybody considering speaking in the future. Teammates can never, ever, under any circumstance, read each other's writing. It's just physically <laughs> impossible, it seems. Uh, so, who from the opposition would care to respond? Yes, go ahead, just for a well, with reference to the team of the Fridays, we repeatedly made the case that we do not want blasphemy to be illegal, as it is in the South. It is also worth noting in the Stephen Fry case, the man who reported it to the police gave an interview to the Guardian, and he told the Guardian, I wasn't actually offended, I was just interested to see if this law actually works. So I'm not sure if it's entirely relevant to our Thank you, Ms. Brennan. And one final question for the proposition, whoever looks the most enthusiastic will get it. It's Mr. Dunn. Thank you, Mr. President. It's been prevalent from the majority of the opposition's case tonight that they are not in any way opposed to even the total separation of church and state. And so my question to the proposition is, if that the protection of human rights, civil rights, social, political or otherwise, are capable, that, sorry, that we can do that without having to blaspheme, and that if we separate church and state entirely, that then religion has no influence on those human rights in the same way as they used to, then what is gained in blaspheming in that situation if we see that without blaspheming then it's possible to protect these rights? Thank you, Mr. Gollum. Uh, who from the proposition would care to respond? Mr. Hayes. Um, yes, well, I actually agree with you. If there is an avenue on which avoid blasphemy to make a point, then blasphemy would be completely pointless. And the argument we prefer is blasphemy as a necessity. If there is no other avenue, um, it's worth noting that um, you can't really change um, the structure of power by conforming to power. Um, and in particular, if you're looking at, say, a trend or a super trend, um, you, sometimes you just can't go around the bush. You have to take it directly. You have to challenge it up front. Um, and of course, we've heard um, different levels of blasphemy that are actually mentioned. But I think this is an opportunity to mention very quickly. Um, we were talking about uh, the opposition saying. Uh, using the Lord's name as bail, as blasphemy, for instance. Um, that is not at all necessary, it is not at all relevant to our argument um, in any capacity. Um, I think that's good. Thank you, Mr. Neil. Anybody from the opposition care of Scott? Mr. Lowe. I'd just like to, to direct the, the host back to the essence of blasphemy, which is injurious speech, uh, spurious speech directed towards the deity. Um, and just to, to clarify, that uh, criticism of a power structure, of a religion, or of uh, any institution cannot really constitute blasphemy. It's a different issue. Thank you, Mr. Love. Sorry, Phil. Tell him, uh, are there any final questions for the opposition once again? Whoever looks the most enthusiastic is going to get it. It's got to be Miss Flash. Right, um, so any criticise the church, the institution, not the God. But if your God believes that 
people, someone is lesser because of their sexuality. I believe your God is wrong, and I will say that. If your God is saying that, that women are lesser, I believe your God is wrong, and I will say that, and if that is blasphemy, I will say that because I believe that your God is wrong. Not your church is wrong, your God is wrong. So, what do you say to that? I can explain. Who's on the opposition with Kegger's previously said, God did not say that um, gay people are lesser. God did not say that women are lesser. It was Which God? Any God. Well, I um, do not know what every religion in the world says. As Mr. Moore says, there are an awful lot of them. I would admire anyone who would know what every God in the world says, but as um, we have argued from quite a Christian perspective, I wouldn't ask that because it's the religion I know best. The Christian God did not say that um, gay people are lesser, it did not say that women were lesser. It were people in the church, priests, um, I think it was St. Paul who said that women should not speak in the assembly. St. Paul is not God. To say that St. Paul is God is blasphemy and he's a member of the institution, not God himself. Thank you, Scott. I'd like to point out that I'm a practitioner of the Church of Cthulhu, long may he terrorise. He thinks that they're all vastly inferior to everything. So, are there any, uh, anyone from the proposition who would care to respond? Mr. Mackle. So, yeah, the first question can be shown is that, and unlike what the opposition are trying to say, and blasphemy is a direct word, a direct assault against God, whatever God that may be, blasphemy is in fact a social construct used by institutions who interpret the word of God in whatever way they see fit. That's what we're saying is that the proposition say that in order to reform those institutions to get closer to the word of God, we must blaspheme. Thank you, Mr. Michael. And one final upstanding point. I think you can preach one. Who looks the most enthusiastic today? Mr. O'Neill, you put your hand up three times. You just haven't been trying. I'm very disappointed. So it has to go to Mr. Dr. Uh, I'll, I'll throw it. Oh, there you go. Mr. O'Neill, what's your question? And what does sorry, uh, what does the house think of uh, the the fact in terms of the figures that there is a complete correlation between tolerance and uh, freedom of speech within the whole of the world? Blas where blasphemy laws have been uh, used, and um, it's actually the least tolerant societies. And um, what do you think on that? Because both talk talk about tolerance, and what do you think that fits in between freedom of speech and most tolerant and the opposite? Thank you, Mr. O'Neill. I'll ask the opposition to respond first this time. Mr. Hickson. The opposition's case has been that blasphemy laws are not the correct way to go about this. We are talking about a policy discussion about whether or not we as a group of individuals, we as a, or we as a collective, if you so wish, would not blaspheme. We would choose not to exercise our rights that we believe we have, and we have affirmed throughout this bench, that we have the right to freedom of expression, but we would not exercise them in such a way as to blaspheme. And I, and I would completely agree that in societies that, um, that utilise a state power to restrict language absolutely in an authoritarian sense, that is a way to shut down tolerance. That is a way to prevent individuals from expressing and from progressing as a society. However, that's not the discussion we're having because that is a whole ethos, that is a whole atmosphere that that society is founded upon. 
We are discussing upon the autonomous decision of individuals to not exercise their right in a specific way. We talk, and I, would, I will take one example and then I'll sit down. Um, we talked about recently the, uh, the, the, the freedom of people to, um, to express their opinions about other people in terms of the, uh, the spectrum of gender. That is another example where we are willing to restrict in the sense of forcing them to expand. It is a restriction, I would argue, but for the purpose of this debate, it is analogous. But we are willing to enforce specific use of language in certain scenarios, in certain circumstances, at the autonomous decision of the individuals. And that is something we have decided to do as a society, not impose top down. Thank you, Mr. Um, Finally, who would care to. I, I agree okay, with the statement, so just briefly uh, in response to that, you say that you would not, you say you have the right, I take your point, you're not arguing with the law, you would choose not to exercise that right to insult someone or to blaspheme. What our point, what our ultimate thesis here is, is that you can't make that decision, that you are not the arbiter of what is blasphemous or not, it is the interpreter. So whether you intend to or not, you may say something which you believe to be true, but that doesn't mean that people won't be offended by it or won't deem it as blasphemous. Galileo did not come up with that theory simply because he wanted to blaspheme, he wanted to speak truth. So again, this is not up to the person who says the words whether other people deem it as blasphemous. Blasphemy is a subjective term and we must allow people to blaspheme if they so wish or if they so feel the need to if we are to speak truth to society. Thank you, Mr. Walker, and I thank you to all of our speakers and indeed the members of the House this evening for a very, I believe, uh, well informed and respectful event. Uh, so, yes, all that remains now is for the closing uh, remarks from our guest chair and then a vote of the House. Just before we move on to the panel, woodworkers this evening. Uh, so, we will be adjourning to woodworkers uh, yeah. down the road. It's, it's fine. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually quite nice. It has a very nice atmosphere and loud. Um, I've worked on it, but a good deal is don't actually drink. And it was still uh, returned there after we did it. So if you yourself are a non-drinker, it's still a very fun place to go. So yes, without further ado, I would welcome uh, our guest chair to return to give us his closing remarks.
but I am very pleased to say that Vipper can range the whole way from Hotsfield's wager through to Father Ted. I'm <laughs> <laughs> especially pleased with Father Ted, thank you, because uh, Father Jack is my inspiration now. I guess I'm trying to work the ministry around it. I think that's enough for the night as far as that. But, thank you.